Well, I know that I'm still young, but today I'm going to put on my spectacles. The good thing about that is I can see my text. The bad thing about that is that I can't see you. Or maybe that's the good thing about it. So what is the next big thing? What, will it come from politics, healthcare, or industry? In our current culture, the next big thing typically revolves around advances that we are making in technology. Things like 3D printing, heads-up displays in cars, handheld tech, uh, healthcare technology, low energy transmissions, mobile payments, and even personal space travel. Those are just a few of the next big things to come our way. A mobile data growth has grown so much that wireless providers, TV companies, and the FCC are trying to figure out how to best distribute the data. The reality is our culture is driven toward the next big thing. But this is nothing new because today in our scripture passage, we're going to see a society that wasn't all that different from ours. Even in the first century in Athens, people constantly conversed about the next big thing. Now, all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new, Acts 17, 21. If there's one thing we have in common with the first century, it's the next big thing. We're always pushing toward what's new and what's next. From the Industrial Revolution to the Technological Revolution, the next big thing is part of our culture, and it's here to stay. But the problem with the next big thing is that it creates an insatiable desire for more. It creates a desire for bigger and for better. This pattern is so prevalent in our society, we have a phrase to describe it. Here today and... Today in our scripture passage, we're going to see that people have been driven toward the next big thing for years in search of contentment and real things that satisfy. And we're going to see also that just as in Athens and in our culture, as much as we seek it, the answers to life's questions aren't found in the constant striving toward the next big thing. But instead, they're found in the eternal. In Acts chapter 17, verses 16 through 34, we're going to see that a provoked heart and a pattern of curiosity led to an opening for the gospel. And that what they received from the apostle Paul was not the next big thing, but the best thing that they could have ever heard. As we study through the book of Acts, we see a major trend of the reception of the gospel from Jews to Gentiles. The book of Acts shows how the gospel moved to the Gentile world. And Luke records this theme so strongly but that by the time we get to the end of Acts, he records one last confrontation with the Jews in Rome where the apostle Paul states this, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles, for they will listen. Acts chapter 17 is an important chapter because it records this movement and sets the stage for what would happen in Corinth in chapter 18. 
But when Silas and Timothy came down from Macedonia, Paul began devoting himself completely to the word, solemnly testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when they resisted and blasphemed, he shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own hands. I am clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. So today we're going to see Paul waiting for Silas and Timothy to come down to Athens after being run out of Thessalonica and Berea by a group of Jews. This account is an example of Paul's witness to the Gentiles and it provides the transition of movement of the gospel from Jews to Gentiles. Today as we look at this passage, we're going to see that to reach people for Christ, we sometimes need a provoked heart, but we also need a prudent message that engages people on common ground. It shows them the truth about God and man, and it calls them to repentance and faith in Jesus. So if you have your Bibles today, turn to Acts chapter 17, and we're going to be looking at the story between verses 16 and 34. Acts chapter 17, 16 reads like this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was beholding a city full of idols. So he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. And also, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him, and some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? Others saying he seems to be a proclaimer of strange deities because he was proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you're proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. We want to know therefore what these things mean. And then verse 21, Now all the Athenians and the strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or receiving, hearing something new. The first thing we see in this account is that Paul had a provoked heart. The word provoked is in the imperfect Greek tense, meaning that Paul wasn't just provoked and got over it. The imperfect tense is the tense that Uh, begins in the moment it is past tense with continuing effects in the future and so paul was provoked then in a continual way he was provoked because athens was a forest full of idols Uh, some streets were so full of idols in athens in the day that pedestrians had difficulty getting through It's estimated that in Paul's day, there were about 30,000 idols in the city of Athens, but only 10,000 people. It was easier to find an idol than it was a person. One particular kind of idol called Herms was a square statue with a head on top. It was very, very prevalent, but the Greek mythological gods were at the center of it all. The Athenians had built the Acropolis, dedicated to these gods. And the first stone of the Parthenon was laid on July the 28th, 447 
B.C. It was laid during a Panathenaic festival, whatever that is. It was intended to create a lasting monument to Athena, goddess of wisdom, who presided over Athens. And it also intended to proclaim Athens' glory to the world. You see, 2,500 years ago, Athens was the glory of the world. And the Acropolis was the place dedicated to its deities and idols. Uh, You can see that they chose an interesting place as it's lifted up some 445 feet over the city itself. Now, just below the Acropolis was a rock hill called Ayers Hill. In classical times, this rock was a place where court tried murderers. The Greek god Ares was supposed to have been tried there for murder. And so the name Ares Hill stuck until later when the Romans referred it to as Mars Hill, after Mars, the Roman god of war. The name of the court that resided here came to be known as the Areopagus, the word being a combination of the name Ares and rock. So the Areopagus was both a body of people with a function to try people, a court, if you will, but it was also a rock hill in the city of Athens. Now, some translations in your Bible, such as the NIV, say that Paul was taken to the meeting of the Areopagus, that is, to the body of people who made up the court where he was either tried or given a friendly hearing. But the original language doesn't say that they took him to a meeting. It says they took him up to the Ayers Rock, meaning Ayers Hill. They took him there because it was a commonplace for members of the Areopagus and the philosophers of the day and educated people to meet there and discuss the next big thing. Though the glory days of Athens had been four centuries earlier, it was still an intellectual and cultural center with two predominant schools of philosophy, one called the Epicureans and the others called the Stoics as mentioned in our passage today. Uh, The Epicureans believed that the universe consisted of atoms that formed combinations by chance. Sound familiar? They did not believe in spiritual things, but only the material. For them, the criteria of truth were the senses, uh, preconceptions, the passions, and pleasure was the purpose in living but not so much by overindulgence. They sought to live instead a tranquil life, free of the pain of the body and disturbance of the mind. The Stoics, on the other hand, they were pantheistic. Uh, They believed that God is all and God is in all. Uh, God is in you and in me and in this building, in the the trees, and in the rocks, and in everything you see, God is all and is in all. Uh, They had a goal to live in agreement with nature. But nature later on became defined as reasoned. They lacked a concept of a personal God, and they saw the world as a place of great order and reason, ordered by the God Zeus, the presiding God of the universe. 
The Stoics were fatalists. Everything that happens must be accepted. But the goal of life was much like the Epicureans, to find contentment. Like the Stoics, New Age philosophies of today are pantheistic. These philosophers, though, were in many ways like many Americans. They were cultured, highly intelligent, educated, and very religious. They enjoyed political freedom in a democracy, but worshipped images made by their own hands and believed in myths. Like us, however, they sought comfort, calm, and retreat from pain. They placed their confidence in the human spirit, and as humanism promises a better tomorrow, they sought truth in their own reason rather than seeking the God of truth. Like us, they were constantly in pursuit of the next big thing and giving credit for their discoveries to the gods. Like them, we still have a tendency to worship our accomplishments. So maybe we shouldn't think that we are all that free from idolatry. If idolatry is that which is most important to us, the thing that we give our time and our constant energy, the thing that we live for, then we have made for ourselves many gods. If Paul lived in America today, I wonder if he would be provoked. Have you ever been provoked at the status of our culture? Now, I'm not talking about being provoked at people, condemning them and shaming them as if they should know better. But instead, I'm talking about being provoked at what, happening, at what is happening around us and in our culture. I think the closest I've come to this feeling was when Melody and I went to Jackson Square in New Orleans, Louisiana. Uh, flanked by the St. Louis Cathedral, the square has been famous as the gathering place for years for painters, both amateurs and professional, with a very wide range of talents. In the 60s and 70s, the square began to change as a place of business for New Age and pagan devotees, telling fortunes, reading palms and tarot cards. In addition, there are a variety of magicians and street performers there who generally work for tips. When I was there, I must say, it really was a freakish kind of place. Uh, but more so, when we were there, it felt heavy. It felt disturbing. I bet if I would have started preaching, they would have said, idle babbler. We see here that Paul was reasoning in the synagogue and in the marketplace. But he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was preaching strange deities and were calling him an idle babbler. But they got curious. And so they brought him up to the hill and they gave him an audience. Notice what their question was. What do these things mean? Now imagine if your child or grandchild came up to you today and said, what is God like? 
what would you say? God is love? God is powerful? Or God is all-knowing? Would you say all three? As Paul begins to preach, he focuses in on these people's greatest need. The answer to the question, what is God like? That's really what they were asking. And in children's terms, here's what he said. God is the creator of everything you see and even what you don't see. He is Lord of both, and so he doesn't live in temples, trees, or statues. We don't serve him because he doesn't need anything. But instead, he chooses to serve us. He gives us life, even every breath. And starting from scratch, he made humans. And he made the earth a place that we could live with time and space for living so we could seek after him. Not just wander around in the dark but actually find him. You see, he doesn't play hide-and-seek with us, but he's very near. We actually live and move around because of him. People called poets have described it like this. We are God's children. And since that is true, what can't be true is that God is in a tree or a statue or anything that we could make. You see, long ago, people didn't know any better. But that time has passed. God has made himself known. And he's decided to make everyone responsible for this knowledge. And has already appointed a judge who will set everything right. His name is Jesus. The way we know this is true is because God raised this Jesus, this judge, from the dead. What question would your child ask next? It's the same question Paul wanted these philosophers in Athens to ask. You see, then and only then could they make sense of what Jesus and the resurrection meant. Now, Paul needed a prudent message because everything that they needed to know Everything they needed to know, what God is like, they needed to know that before they could know what God did. So even though Paul was provoked, notice Paul didn't start by saying, you fools, you've exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal men. Notice instead, Paul first began on common ground. You see, if we're to reach people for Christ, we've got to begin on common ground. Paul talked on their terms, literally. If you study this sermon, it shows that it is pretty closely styled according to classical Greek rhetoric. It's a fairly formal speech that falls into clearly defined sections. First, included in those sections are the introductory remarks. Then Paul gives an account of what has happened. He gives a proposition or statement of charge, and then he begins to give the evidence of the claim. 
afterwards he gives a refutation or what he seems to believe as the perceived questions. And finally, he summarizes it and gives the appeal. Notice the introductory remarks in verse 22. I observe that while you are, that I observe that you are religious in all respects. Next, Paul describes what happened. While I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Verse 23a. Paul likely knew the story of the unknown God because it's clear from the sermon that he knew some things about the Athenian culture. You see, in the 6th century before Christ, Athens was struck by a plague. Uh, Many offerings were given to the multitude of Athenian gods, but the plague still continued. And finally, their priests instructed the Athenians to call on Epimenides, a Cretan hero. They called on him to come over and help them. And so he advised them to have hungry sheep ready by dawn and to bring them over to Mars Hill. Shepherds were instructed to watch them and see if any lay down because this would be very unusual as the hungry sheep would naturally want to graze rather than first lie down. And so then Epimenides instructed the shepherds to mark the spot where the sheep lay down. The sheep that lay down were sacrificed there on special altars. And those altars were inscribed to the unknown God. After that, the plague was lifted. And the Athenians showed their gratitude to Epimenides. This is important because Paul used what these people confessed they did not know as the link to what they needed to know. You see, they were without knowledge, and so they worshipped an unknown God. Think about the irony. Think about the irony in what Paul did. The most literate men of their day were, in fact, ignorant men in a city of great learning. This is the statement of the charge in verse 23b. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Secondly, Paul showed them the truth about God and man. First of all is he created common ground. And that's what we need to do when we're reaching people for Christ as well. But secondly... He showed them the truth about God and man. This follows in the Greek style as well and is both the evidence of the claim and the truth about the living God. Listen as Paul continues. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served with human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth. Having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation. 
Who is God? Who is God? The Greeks had their notions, but they lacked understanding. They had boiled the divine down to a group of objects that must be appeased and served. But God can't be appeased. Instead, Paul says, he is the life giver. The world is not randomly deterministic, but instead is sustained by a sovereign God who determines the times, places, and boundaries of man. God is no mere cosmic force. He's a personal God. But Paul also preached the truth about man. God created us from one man, and we are equals. You see, the Greeks thought that they were superior. We are under the sovereignty of this God, but have been made in his image and live because of him. He has designed us for relationship and wants us to seek him, and he's closer than we might think. He's been very patient And he's revealed himself in such a way that all will be made responsible to him. You can imagine at this point the questions that must have gone off in the heads of these men. Classical rhetoric is designed to create questions. And I can just hear them saying, we find that man's purpose is to find contentment, calm, and to live in comfort. If this is true about God, then what is man's purpose? Paul goes on then as he provides that answer. That they would seek God if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and exist even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his children. At this point, Paul has laid out his case with two logical arguments. First, they had admitted their ignorance of God by worshiping the unknown God, and they creating a faulty system of searching for him. The God who is unknown, Paul says, has made himself known. God is not hiding from men, but men are hiding from God using whatever they can invent as their shields. Secondly, Paul argues, if God has created man as his children, then there's no way he could be reduced to images of stone. For if we are greater than these images of stone, how much greater must God be? Sometimes as believers, we fall prey to the notion that we are worthless, that we lack value, and that God is everything. Though the Bible talks about the brevity of life, it doesn't talk about mankind as worthless. It doesn't say that mankind is nothing. What it says is that we can do nothing. The truth is, we are made in the image of God with great value, great worth, 
So much so that God gave his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. And we have the capacity for relationship with him. Finally, but not least, Paul called these men to repentance and faith. Here's the summary and appeal. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of men. Therefore, Paul says, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to all men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man who he has appointed having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Notice here that Paul says, we. He's inclusive. You see, every person can mistake the divine nature. We see it every day. People still trying to define what God is like on their own terms. But inasmuch as each person can mistake God's nature, so too God cares for each one of us. He cares for each person. God is dealing with man differently now, though, and will judge him through the appointed man who has been proven through resurrection. You see, the crux of Christianity really is the resurrection it really does come down to one thing do you believe in resurrection paul said it this way to the corinthians if the dead are not raised not even christ has been raised and if christ has not been raised your faith is worthless you are still in your sins and so then those who have fallen asleep in christ have perished If we have hoped for Christ in this life only, we of all men are the most to be pitied. If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do you believe in resurrection? The resurrection is the dividing line between those who sneer and those who believe. If the resurrection really happened, then Paul leaves the Athenians... And us with one question to answer. And it's the most important question we will ever answer. Who is this man? Who is this judge? Who is this man that God has appointed? You see, the gospel is fundamentally an announcement. Good news, not an explanation or a debate. Jesus Christ came as God in the flesh. God in the flesh sent here to save us religion and philosophy ask who is right the gospel says who is jesus religion and philosophy ask what is true the gospel says sanctify them by your truth your word is truth religion and philosophy ask what does god want from us the gospel says look what god has done for us Religion and philosophy ask, what sacrifice, what do I have to sacrifice to gain God's approval? 
The gospel says, look at the sacrifice God has made for you. Christianity does not come to us by way of explanation, but by revelation. You see, when you are doing your very best to communicate God's truth and come to a point where you don't know what else to do, present the claims of Jesus, present them and ask, who do you say that he is? And then let God do the rest. That's what Jesus did for us. He came and he saw us in our idolatry and sin. And frankly, he was probably provoked. But instead of condemning us and writing us off, he ran to us and he showed us the insufficiency of our answers without him and then revealed God to us in his death and resurrection. As he has done to us, let us do to others. Maybe you see the truth of the gospel today. Maybe you have lived a philosophy that's not working. You realize that you were created by a glorious God to know and be loved by him. And nothing else is working. Today, today, you can believe. Repent of your ways of doing things and turn to God's. The good news is this, that Christ died for our sins and rose from the dead. And God has made us this promise. Believe in him and you will be saved. Trust God today. His promises are true and he is good. Maybe today you're thinking of people that you need to engage Maybe you need to ask God for strength and for boldness. Maybe you need to be motivated by provocation, but maybe you need clarity. Sometimes we need to be provoked at what's going on around us, but we also need to be prudent. Remember, begin on common ground but show them the truth about God and man. Call them then to repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord God, I thank you that even those who worship the God unknown could come to a knowledge of the God who is known. Well, I thank you that Apostle Paul gives us an amazing example of how we can begin on common ground, how we can show people the truth about God and man and then call them to repentance and faith. And so, Lord God, I pray this morning that if there's anyone here that needs to repent and trust Christ as their only way of salvation, to believe that he died for our sins and rose from the dead, that, Lord, that you would give them right now in their chair just that moment to say, Lord, I believe in the provision that you have given for me. Christ, crucified, dead, 
buried and raised for me. In his name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.